0: Ema McBride trained at the Drama Centre in London. Her debut novel, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, received a number of awards, including the Goldsmith Prize, the Bailey's Woman's Prize for Fiction, and Irish Novel of the Year. She occasionally writes and reviews for The Guardian, TLS, and The New Statesman. Ema McBride, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. So your most
1: recent book is Strange Hotel, and you've selected a a passage that you'll be reading for us.
2: Yeah, I'm just going to read from the last section, which is called The Imagined Room, in which the, the protagonist imagines a hotel room that she might have stayed in when she was younger. A man told me a story, and it wasn't just a story, and he thought it would make me run. And if that ending to his story had proved to be the story, some choices are made only once. But that other path still reconsiders its merit within me now and then. My eye, pressed to a spy hole in an unfamiliar hotel, appears to be one such occasion. So, she sees myself standing in an imagined hotel room, all arrayed like a Victorian bedchamber I've repurposed from some film. Four-poster bed and bolster, only bare, bulbed, lit, an invented authenticity, but I am inventing this, so I can deck it out in any way I want. Conversely, now, a real truth, it would have been my first hotel. If not the Savoy of my imaginings, he would have taken care to make it decent. He'd have been conscientious about that because I was so young, showing up there in the middle of the night and then would have been staying on my own. I think he would have walked me to the foyer. He would have seen me in and ensured all the details were in order, breakfast ordered, payment taken before taking his final leave of me at the lift doors or foot of the stairs. Would he have lent in to kiss my cheek goodbye? I can't imagine him having not, but if coming here was the choice I'd opted for, we would already have been different. And hard as it may be to gauge how we'd have introduced that space, this decisive going of our separate ways would certainly suggest a start. That said, now I'm in bed with a purely speculative. Any possibility might become fact. Therefore, continue on. Good night.
1: You know, it's it's very interesting because I, as I was reading this and I was uh, thinking about a girl as a, a half-formed thing and I think about books that would be different written at other ages. So why was this book a, a, a book that you wrote now? I mean, why? Because your earlier books have been about much um, younger women. Yeah, well, I
2: mean, obviously I had stopped being a much younger woman myself, so that was part of it. I think I had reached the point after... A Girl and After the Lesser Bohemians, where I wanted to write about a woman more my own age and that kind of experience, the infuriation of all the expectations of things one is supposed to be preoccupied by when hitting middle age that I didn't feel that I was preoccupied by. And also, I suppose, to think about language in a different way to write. The first two books are very much written in a way that is trying to express that kind of terrible urgency. And the vulnerability of young women to life and how you allow it to come in and affect you and change you but when you get older of course you you are more wary you know the things that hurt you you want to be more careful and I, I suppose I wanted to think about how language could be used in a different way to portray that experience so rather than the sort of broken very immediate syntax of the experience experiential language of the first two books, using a language that was really about someone who's trying to put distance between herself and the reader and create distance even inside herself and how language changes in order to do that.
1: I think it's interesting because we also have in this conversation, Justin, who is a fellow Irish person, and we're all travelers. We've all lived in Ireland. I'm also part Irish. But I find that the setting of the hotels are interesting, and I'm sure uh, Justin is now phoning in from Saudi Arabia where he has a project. But when I've traveled, it's interesting to think of hotel rooms as you know, stages or witnesses, and you wonder all the things that a room has witnessed. What was the inception of the idea? And did you want to come in, Justin, to, to add to that as a traveler?
3: No, it was just, yeah, the, the the situation I found myself in in Saudi lockdown since whatever, since December nearly, I haven't seen Ireland. So yeah, it's it's very interesting. And I do a lot of travel and this cocooning, and something something that, that you mentioned to me a little earlier what was interesting to me was the, the safeness or the, you know, everything that's happening to this character is happening in their head. It's, it's In some ways, it's safe. So it, it's interesting to say about the older and the controlling nature of it, but everything is controlled, actually, and nothing bad seems to happen. I was just thinking, you know, when all this lockdown changes, are we still going to be welcomed abroad? Is tourism going to be the same? Are we going to have the same welcome or you know, be in, be in that same sort of space that we've thought about. That was my, my hope for this year. It's not working out that way. <laughs>
2: yeah, I've also travelled a lot in recent years with book touring. And so in a personal way, I suppose I felt like when you do that, when you first start doing book tours, it's all very exciting and it's lovely to go to hotel rooms. And it feels a bit glamorous and you want to see what's in the minibar and what the free toiletries and all that kind of stuff. But then very quickly, it stops being glamorous and it stops being fun and it starts being monotonous and it starts to be lonely. And I suppose I started to wonder if there was a way to make use of what felt like dead time, wasted time, all those days and weeks it felt like that I had spent in hotel rooms that seemingly had no meaning. And so I wanted to, you know, think about the hotel rooms and why people go there and what happens to you, what kind of person you become in this place where no one is with you, no one knows you, you can be anything you want and so ostensibly you're incredibly free but really all you're left with is yourself and your memories and your thoughts. And how do you cope in that very kind of intense space if the past is something that you don't want to think about? The past is something that you want
1: to escape. Yes, and your writing is very elusive. So I was never sure... Maybe it is a little more ex- explicit in your earlier two novels, but I never was sure why she was in the hotel rooms, you know? So there was this mystery as well that keeps you reading. I mean, maybe I could have missed some lines, so I was No, no, that.
2: I I think that's, that's I mean, that, that's quite right in that she is very, the, the point of the character is that she is very elusive. And although a lot of the book is written in the third person, it's kind of a cheeked third person. It's not a real third person. It's not me describing her for you. It's really you just kind of being allowed to look in on the thought process of someone else. So of course we don't spend our lives explaining all our history to ourselves. Every time we have a thought, we just think it. And so it was just trying to recreate that and maybe leave enough breadcrumbs for readers to understand what the, of the significant things were even though you don't get any concrete details like why is she in this place and uh, who was this person and what's her job and where did you know all of this kind of stuff that we associate with identity and markers of our identity and what kind of people we like to sleep with and what sort of clothes we like to wear and whether we keep a diet or we you know all this kind of stuff that is if we're on facebook these are the things that tell people who we are. But if we take away all of those things, there's still a person. We're all still individuals underneath all the stuff that we load on ourselves to explain who we are to others. And I suppose that's what I'm interested in when I'm writing is to try to drill down to a much more kind of essential, possibly more universal self that everyone has access to within themselves. And that also is an unusual way to access somebody else.
3: Yeah, it's a very introspective or insular sort of perspective. And I just think it's, it was really interesting to, it reminded me a lot of reading some of Beckett, you know, and this thought process, this stream of consciousness, this kind of, you know, toing and froing, like either like ants or rats trying to figure things out. That, you know, and more and more, I think we have to practice it or think about it. It's more and more a new life skill to be able to reason and you know think of the context you're in and how that, how that affects things so while it was maybe magnified and very immediate uh, for me it was it was really interesting to to have that perspective and uh, as you say you know all the all the missing details actually you, they, they, they weren't needed because you were propelled ahead and i found it just a real page turner and even some things you know getting back to the the music or the energy of it you know i i kind of got even thinking back to the likes of Gilbert and Sullivan as they kind of raced through, you know, their, you know, H.S. Pinafore, I am the very model of a modern major general. Kind of, there was this pace and energy and kind of, you know, just kind of thing that wanted you to turn the next page and to, to figure out a little bit more about this person.
0: Well,
2: that is definitely the first time I've ever been compared to Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. But yes, yeah. you, you hit on something that is part of the point of the language, is that the language is very rhythmical. And that's kind of there because I'm aware, as a writer, I'm aware that for readers, not giving them a lot of the traditional information is not always easy. And it makes it harder to make a connection. But actually, if the language is impulsive, that can help yeah. with yeah. drawing the reader in.
3: Hopefully, hopefully it's still talking after the Gilbert and Solberton reference. But um, again, <laughs> yeah. I think... I think some some of this, you know, again the the the, the complementarity of the other arts. I mean, I say me as a painter, listening to music, complementing, you know, spoken words. I know John Kelly has introduced a couple of really interesting ones to me recently, the, the Simon Armitage LYR stuff and the you know the Preface route, trawling the megahertz and kind of um, maybe it just leads you along, it's a bit more overt. Whereas you know reading yours without that music element, be it. Of, of, any, of any musical sort is actually, it's within the structure. It's within the flow of the, of the work, which for me was really interesting because I, I like music and that, that was something I could kind of hear in my ear.
2: Yeah, well, music is very important to me when I write. And, you know, I sort of, with each book, I've really created a soundtrack. I suppose it, start, it really started actually with Lesser Bohemians more than Girls, a Half-Worm Thing, which was because I knew I was writing a book about the 90s. And I I started to listen to things that I would have listened to then as a kind of a girl or a young woman in the 90s, just to sort of recreate that atmosphere. But then over time, that shifted more into this rhythm and also the content of the things that I was listening to started to feed in and bleed into it as well. And certainly when I sat down to a strange hotel, there were different things in my head, different songs or different pieces of classical music. Yeah, and I think it's really important to allow those other kind of elements in. I'm not really a literary purist when it comes to that sort of thing. I I think you should be a magpie and take your influences and your cues from all over the
1: place. And oh, it's interesting because you've been very brave in, in terms of the, your experimental writing style or stream of consciousness. But on another level, this music of being, which is consciousness, I mean, I think very few people are com- constantly thinking in complete sentences. This, uh, to me, this breathless quality or finishing, putting the full stop in, you know, if things are half finished, to me is more a reflection of what we are. but we have this structure of language that makes it all logical and ordered. But that's a little bit of a straitjacket that I don't think we, we're a bit freer in here. Yeah, I, and, and
2: I think that was definitely my starting point when I first started to work on The Girl as a half Thing was the idea of there being this part of life that exists that is really hard to put into linear language, that doesn't run in accordance with the plot, or with the way that we describe things that can even be destroyed by being straitjacketed into grammatical language. And you know, that was really the thing that set that set me off on the path was I feel so conscious of that part of life that is very intangible, but is hugely influential, that is hard to name or quantify, but has such influence over how you think about the world, how you react to the world, how you make your way through the world, who you are underneath it all. And linear language has never really seemed to me adequate to express all of those things. And so, because I was coming from a drama school background as opposed to literary background or creative writing university background, and character was the thing that I was most interested in and probably because of my acting background those were the tools that I started to use which were at that time the kind of hardcore Stanislavski method acting was the training that I'd had which was really about trying to recreate the entirety of the inner life of a person and then also how lots of disparate elements affect that inner life in random ways and can create pressures and propel things so that if I'm sitting talking to you and I'm trying to think about my answer but at the same time i feel like i'm about to have a nosebleed that creates pressure within a situation and changes how that happens or i'm worried that my dog is going to run up the stairs and come into the room that's going to add a certain kind of absence to what i'm saying because there's a part of me that's over here thinking about something else or Even when you're in a situation where something hyper-emotional and you look at something, you look at a picture on the wall or a patch of damp, something is evoked inside you, something occurs that is unexpected. All of this is part of how we live our lives. And it was part of how, you know, I learned how to create character. And so it seemed to me kind of obvious that that was the sort of tools that I should be using for writing. And that in order to use those tools, language had to work differently, that it couldn't work just in the And Jane said, I'm very tired. And Paul said, well, that's fine. I'm sick of you being tired. You know, those, they don't recreate the experience of who Jane is being tired or how Paul is reacting to the hundredth time Jane has said she's tired or whatever it is. And so, I suppose all the time I'm looking for specifics, even when I'm in the midst of trying to get rid of all of the usual information. I'm looking for the kind of, what is specific to a scene, to a character, to a a certain place and time. That means that this situation can only happen in this way, at this moment, and never again in, in, in exactly the same way. And that's interesting to me. And making language do that is interesting to me.
3: I think the other thing about that, capturing the thought process and what's coming through in the book as well is, you know, you think of Descartes, I think therefore I am. It's the pure essence of somebody, that process, that putting some shape on what's kind of intangible or internal, purely, I mean, Mm -hmm. how much of a person is the actual person, uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the spirit of the kernel of, you know, what motivates them. Everything else is context. Everything else is... As you say something to react to as opposed to something innate or something you know genetic in them that's that's coming out so i really like that's the beckett-esque view as well or that similar thought, or a similar way of imparting as i say more life in a completely different perspective to as you say that some of the more traditional ways that you would get that across so at the end of the day it's a nice life skill as well i think it's interesting with all this lockdown and all this work i'm trying to i'm looking around at you know new ways of working and as human beings i think increasingly we're actually being paid to think it's you know the knowledge world and the knowledge economy and what we do for a living uh, whether it be commercial or academic actually you know a lot of the value that you bring or whether you're in art or in acting or in commerce or in government etc most of what you're, the value you're doing is, and I think the more people read this or understand this or think about it, it's a really good, good life
1: scope.
2: Yeah. I think with Strange Hotel though, I was also after something else, which was kind of a rejection of the hyper-emotionalism that seems to be so current at the moment in which, while I agree that we're in the midst of suddenly people being paid to think about things, people in social contexts and leaking into professional situations are increasingly led by emotion and that somehow the way they feel counterbalances or is the same as a fact or as a thought that somehow emotion is more valuable or more truthful than thought rather than just another way of experiencing and evaluating life. Yep. And I suppose I really wanted to write a character that rejected emotion, that was not interested in telling everyone how they were feeling, how angry they are, how disgusted they are, or all of these kind of Twitter feelings that everyone's always having. I'm so yeah, yeah. happy and grateful because I had a nice breakfast, or I'm so outraged <laughs> because, you know, And but just someone who's not interested in engaging in that kind of way, because I think there are lots of people who are not interested in engaging in the world in that way, and... Somehow this kind of glorified emotionalism is is taking over the public discourse, and I find it completely exhausting because I am, you know, a real kind of anti-emotional person, despite the fact that I think my books can be or evoke quite emotional reactions in people. I'm myself not a particularly emotional person, and I get very exhausted having to deal with everybody else's feelings. And so it was kind of a treat to write a character who was also not really interested In kind of trawling through the depths of her emotions. And when the emotion is there, she tries to suppress it or tries to escape it. She doesn't wallow in it. She's not making a meal out of it. It's not exposing particular truth about herself or her past or her relationship or the person that she's lost to herself. It's simply something that she doesn't really want to engage with. And that she creates these long, convoluted sentences that are very grammatical and linear, but actually turn out to be anti communicative at the same time as being supposedly easier to read because it's all it's all grammatical it's all linear it's all and yet at the same time it's not it's kind of anti-communication using grammar in that way it was was quite a freeing experience i would say to just step outside that hyper emotional center we all seem to be moving around at the moment
3: overly polarizing all sorts of opinions and thinking that the event, it's going to change things and everybody's with you rather than taking a step back and, as you say, take the emotion out of it and be a little bit more rational, or focus on the facts and actions.
1: You no, know, it's interesting. Well, one thing I've experienced or felt that uh, people think of, Irish people generally as being very emotional, being very warm. So it's a strange, thing. it's a strange impression. And there must be something. But I understand because there's another level of that that's uh, not necessarily warm. It's just like knowing how to talk. <laughs> but uh, It
2: is an interesting thing. People do have this idea of Irish people being terribly warm and terribly friendly. And I, you know, having grown up in Ireland, don't necessarily agree with that. I think Irish people are very approachable and that is a nice quality for strangers. When they come to Ireland they find Irish people very approachable that actually to not be approachable is the great sin in Ireland but that's not really the same thing as being friendly. I think it's easy to go to the pub with people it's not as easy to get to know them. And having also lived for many years in England, I would say that English people who are not especially approachable in that way are easier to become friendly with eventually than Irish people. I think that's kind of the great tug in Ireland of who is
1: close and who is not close, who is allowed in and who is not allowed in. It's interesting because I'm here in France and of course French are not known for being approachable, but I have many deep friends friendships here but I guess it's not something that's given to everyone and that you have your outdoor face and you have these things that have been what you were talking about this emotionalism spreading into society it's been something I think that's changing here too it's been safeguarded a little bit more in France in particularly in Paris I would say yes but and I thought it was also interesting just for an artist or a writer to say that they're not emotional It's interesting because sometimes you do need to distance yourself from an emotion in order to write about it, right? To observe it. Or you can just exercise those emotions so that it doesn't infect the rest of your life with a lot of chaos, right? So it's interesting how we can be almost surgical. (laughs)
2: Yeah, well, you know, and I think people do mistake that a lot with writers. But I think writers ourselves are generally under no illusion about the fact that we carry around a chip of ice in our hearts. But, and I think a lot of novelists I know would say the same thing, that there is almost to a problematic degree an inability to feel close to life. There is a, a part of you that is always watching. That is always observing, that is always, no matter what's going on, picking up details and analyzing and absorbing things and not consciously not, okay. this is going to be great. This funeral will be brilliant for my new novel. But just that that is how a lot of novelists deal with life and that actually the writing is a way to feel closer to those experiences that we think everyone else is having around us.
0: As the LGBTQ voices and poetry editor, I found Mia Funk's interview with Imer McBride quite fascinating. You really never get to see authors that write the way that McBride does, as someone that, quote, feels so conscious of that part of life that is very intangible but is also hugely influential. So, though her writing is quite elusive and seemingly vague, it opens the door up for deeper exploration and broad interpretations that really, at least to me, are quite poetic in a way. Her comments on linear language in particular and how limiting it can be further emphasizes poetic style. It is something I deeply appreciate as a poet myself, who often has an incredibly hard time writing creative nonfiction or fiction, so for me, hearing the way McBride writes challenges me not to be so fearful of other genres and that writing them in such a poetic style could actually open up new ways for me to write my own poetry, such as in a prose fashion, which is something I hope to include a lot of in my upcoming Poetic Anthology, *Partridge Hunting, A story of experiencing boyhood as a queer adult. Furthermore, as an aspiring scholar of sexuality, I deeply appreciate this interview's discussion of it as simply another way of expressing and getting to know a character. Oftentimes in media, we simply see it as an act with no impact on character, so it's absolutely wonderful to see how McBride uses it as such a tool. It opens us up to a world that breaks down taboos surrounding sex and sexuality wholly, and as a queer person whose sexuality is deemed incredibly promiscuous and in certain situations criminal, I find such a discussion to be quite liberating, something that can encourage me to be more open about such a thing in my own writing. Therefore, I encourage other writers to explore this topic on their own, as it could be one that broadens our understanding and opens our minds up to the taboos surrounding sex wholly, and thus create a more accepting and understanding society. And so, speaking of having a little bit of ice in the heart, you wrote about events
1: which were close to events in your life in terms of grief. How did you approach that? And how much ice did you have to keep in your heart just not to (sighs) totally relive them? Well, I think with a girl as a half-form thing, obviously everyone knows I did,
2: the book is about a girl who loses her brother and I did lose my brother to a brain tumour. And the truth is when I sat down to write that book, I sat down with a completely different idea and thought the last thing that I would ever want to write about was that experience of grief. And yet it kept returning, and kept returning. And eventually I knew that I had to sort of give in to it. But at the same time, the book was never close to memoir. It's not, I am not that girl, that boy is not really based on my brother. There are some things that are are similar, but uh, actually a lot of things are very different. He was a very different person, lived a very different life. And I think it would have been impossible for me to write that book as a memoir because to write about those kind of personal things wouldn't allow me any critical capacity at all. There would be no room to be able to be analytical or to make any kind of technical judgments and that's why I've always been very keen not to write memoir whenever I've been asked to contribute memoir pieces to magazines I always refuse and I often find that being far from the place that I'm writing about allows me to write about it so you know I was living in London the time that I wrote A Girl is a Half Home Thing I don't know if I could have written the same book in the same way if I had been living in Ireland at the time and similarly when I came to write Lesser Bohemians I had moved back to Ireland and was living in Cork for a few years and really kind of missing London and the beginning of that book was a sort of homesickness london and again was something like i thought oh my god i never want to write anything that's set in a drama school how awful and then immediately proceeded to write a book that was set (laughs) in a drama school but it was being away from that place and time i think allowed the room for fiction to come in and to uh, explore those kind of bigger wider truths that fiction allows that writing memoir doesn't permit that you are really just stuck with what happened, how it happened, and although you have your own interpretation and you know that that might be different to someone else's, you can't go against your own interpretation. You can, that can, only, you can explore it, but you can't, you know, change it. The subjective experience you had remains and fiction kind of frees you from all of that. So I suppose I find it useful perhaps to have a springboard in reality in my own life but I I've got to jump off from there and go elsewhere to kind of really explore
1: a subject. Yeah so it's interesting because I I wonder sometimes how good is memory for writing fiction or the arts if you had that kind of photographic perfect word perfect memory would you want to be a novelist or I mean how do you work with your memory? I use memory really in a way
2: that triggers other things I don't really use it for facts or for recreating factual situations. So that doesn't interest me. I don't doesn't matter how I remember it. But there are sometimes remembering the way something smelled or how a room looked or a place that you once spent a lot of time at that you don't spend time at anymore, how that affects you, how it makes you respond to a certain situation, how it changes your Idea or a view of a scene that's really useful. You know, in the Stanislavski method, there were triggers, which literally meant things that just affected you in a particular way that you found useful. And so you work hard to work out what your different triggers were and how they created certain sensations or emotions or whatever inside you, and then you would use those in whichever situation. But actually, in a technical way. Very useful to put those things, to be aware within yourself of, of things that create certain reactions inside you. And so in that way, memory is very useful. Certain people from my past who I can't think of without wanting to laugh my head off or, you know, <laughs> this terrible situation of humiliation. And I remember that someone was drinking a, a cafe at that moment and the smell of the Nass Cafe recreates this awful sense of humiliation inside me. Things like that so memory is good for that memory is useful for that but yeah as far as he said this and she said that and no that's you know i think then that's memoir memory is good for recreating sensations of humanity which are then useful in lots of different contexts and for different characters maybe for different reasons But adds some kind of detail that feels truthful
1: I wonder then what was it like to see the adaptation of a girl's half-formed thing on stage I mean yeah. this so rooted in voice and now it's here physical yeah well it was it was a very
2: odd thing because I didn't particularly want it to be adapted I didn't because the whole point of the book for one thing is that you never see the character so everything is situating the action kind of inside you Like right inside your chest and so you're experiencing what she's experiencing as she's experiencing it rather than from a critical vantage point which you get to view everything and then make a judgment but the minute of course you put her on stage she becomes looked at she becomes an object that you look at that is outside of you that is a person who's going through her experience that you are not going through and so I felt very kind of ambivalent about that but Annie Ryan who was the director was just very persuasive and I think I just was a bit sentimental to be honest about theatre and that hadn't been part of my life for a long time and she persuaded me and I said yes and she did the adaptation with a lot of consultation with me and then the first day went into rehearsal. I was very nervous because I thought, Oh, I'm gonna have to listen to someone else say those lines. And I had also just recorded the audiobook myself, so I had a very particular idea about the way it should be spoken and read. And I thought, Well, you know, if she doesn't do it the way I do it, there's <laughs> gonna be trouble. And so we all sat down around the, around the table, and Eva Duffin, who played the girl, started to read. and she read it in a really different way to the way that I read it but I knew straight away that she understood it and I thought okay I think it's going to be okay it's different but of course it has to be different because it's a different medium it's going to be different inevitably it's going to be different and so in a way I felt like I could let go of it but it was just, it was going to have a different kind of life now and it, the story would be told in a slightly different way and people would experience it in a different way and that's what happened. I still prefer the book, I have to say, but I think it was a worthwhile exercise.
1: I think it's interesting, you know, I was speaking to the essayist John Tagata the other day and so usually he's not used to seeing his um, writing perform, but there was an adaptation of this, this book he co-authored and they were seeing a lot of theatre and then he said that seeing a lot of theater, he just one day started crying um, in the theater just because he was just, it was a, the play wasn't even sad, but it was just, he could just see this whole collective energy and that he felt, it, you know, he's, you know, he loves language, but he felt it could never really reach, even though he had an adaptation of his, of his book, but he it wasn't a part of that collective experience. Mm. And so I'm wondering, do you ever feel, I guess you said, sentimental for the theatre or tempted even then to write directly for theatre or something that you miss that collective process? It's
2: funny you should say that because I've spent the last while doing a film adaptation of The Lesser Bohemians and that's been a really different kind of experience because one, because suddenly loads of people. Have an opinion (laughs) that you have to listen to (laughs) about it, whereas you know with a novel you're just like I am alone for years. Everything is exactly the way I I've written the theme tune, sung the theme tune. I've decided, I've directed it. I've I've done the costume design. You know, I've acted it. Everything is me. I choose everything. And suddenly you're in a situation where you know they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Does that work? And we're going to have a conversation about this, that, and the other thing. And does how does this lie? And actually at first I was just like, Oh God, is this going to be terrible? Am I going to be raging all the time? And then I kind of got to enjoy it. The kind of, you can just t- remove a lot of responsibility. And it, it became like a real interesting challenge to recreate that story, which of course has to be like half the book had to be thrown in the bin because it's so, too long to make film that long. It'd be just hours and hours shagging on screen which you know well, that might be fine but to, to kind of to try and recreate the spirit something that was true to the spirit of the book but which tells the story in quite different ways without certain characters without certain plot lines and i just i really enjoyed it actually and also the idea that there was only so much you could do that at a certain point i could write the script I set up all the architecture and I write the lines but someone else will say them and they will say them in the way that they think they should be said, not in the way that I want them to say them necessarily, that the director will look at it through their own lens and see how they want to tell that story and yeah, it's very different but also, you know, kind of exciting actually that the, that the story can survive, shifting from one, one form to another form. It, I it, look
1: forward it, to that movie. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting, the different parts of your brain and personality that happen when you're, you're, you're collaborating with a team. And I, I don't know as much about it, but I've had to come out of, you know, being a kind of solitary painter to do collective things. And yeah, it's nice to see other people take an idea and then do something else and come back and it's like I don't know this person that you're introducing to me but I think it was my baby Um, but it's interesting we look forward to that and to your other writing directly for the page and I wonder a lot of your writing has been focused with this strong character who is a woman but I wonder because you know you um, know, Stephen, and I wondered if you would write more focusing on the male characters. I'd never really thought about writing a male character, but then I spent years
2: writing Stephen <laughs> in *The of Bohemians, but at the same time, he's not written in the same way he is written in the third person. You never see inside of him, I never write from his interior self. So what you get is what Eily hears. To so the person that he is and how he describes his experience, even though he talks about very intimate, very difficult things in his life, you only hear how he tells that story to somebody else. You never hear how he's experiencing it inside of himself. So he does exist at a remove in a way that Eileen doesn't, But you do get to know what it's like inside her, everything that's going on. And I don't know, I suppose I thought... When I started Strange Hotel, I thought, well, it'd be really interesting to write a third person properly, write third person. And then I couldn't. Then it still turned into a whole kind of weird, not real, not proper third person, but this other kind of third person. So I don't know. I don't know if I would write a male character. I don't know if I would try to write a male character in the way that I have written female characters. But I think I might try again to write from the third person properly. <laughs>
1: but uh, yeah. That's a, it seems to be a challenge that i I don't know how to meet and I don't want to neglect to mention i mean because you've been described as like one of the best writers on sex and intimacy we have today, and I think the courage and honesty and just your approach is very interesting. It's also like your voice it's from the inside and and after all, sex is a sensation it's not like we you know we're thinking about the camera angles mm. <laughs> so so I think it's it's very interesting and I, I don't know how you some of that in yourself very strictly catholic so i
2: many many's a hang-up and certainly when i started to write *Les bohemians and i realized that so much of the story would be told through the sexual experiences of the two main characters i was kind of aghast Thought, god how embarrassing this is terrible to have to write all of this stuff and why am i so interested am i just a bit of a pervert or what is it and I think what I realised was that it was a way of exploring character that I didn't feel had been exploited really very much in the past. And therefore I was kind of interested in it in how that this thing which everyone does or doesn't, but whatever, you know, whichever they're doing it or they're not doing it, it is important and a central role in all of our lives and it yet in literature and even in film it's portrayed in this kind of cut-off way as though it is not a part of who we are but rather simply an activity like washing the dishes that we are separate from that we perform but doesn't isn't informed by who we are or shaped by who we are and that doesn't shape us and of course i once i realized that that actually sex is not just something that is done but it is an expression of the self for good or for bad and that when people have sex you know then it's like you never go into the same river twice so every time something else is you're learning something else about each other or about yourself and that when you leave that room the next morning you take the experience of the night before with you again for better or for worse but you are changed like everything in the way that we would never consider if a writer wrote a scene in which a mother said to a daughter i hate you and i never want to see you again we would never consider that the daughter would leave that room and those words would stay in that room and have no effect anywhere else in the rest of her life it would be preposterous it would just make a mockery of of psychological realism And yet with sex, so often it's just used as a sort of a device and left behind as though we don't bring sexual experiences with us through our lives. And that they influence us, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. But to write about a relationship and a sexual relationship, of course, when they arrive in that room that first night, he thinks he's having a one night stand. She thinks she's getting rid of her virginity and that's gonna be it. And then the whole scene becomes different and she becomes vulnerable and then he tries to help her and then because he's trying to be nice about it, he makes himself vulnerable, but then she gets kind of cross about it and then he gets cross about it and the whole experience has changed. And when they leave, so when they meet the next time, that experience already exists for both of them. They know things about each other about themselves and then so the next time they have sex they learn something else and they become different again and and so it just it just seemed to me a way to explore a character but to use the body instead of again the usual means of i think this i feel like that i decide to eat an ice cream you know but that actually using this kind of se- sexual experience as a way to really understand to allow those people to understand each other, these two people who have been through these traumatic experiences, who find it hard to talk about themselves and, and those experiences, but allow their bodies to become intimate so that when the moment is right, there's a kind of a bond and then they can talk when the time comes. Yeah, and so it's really, it's a means of, of expressing character, I think, and that's, once you're using it as that, it suddenly becomes much more interesting, actually. And you get much less bogged down in the whole writing, you know, the terrible vocabulary for writing about sex because it's just so badly written about generally because it wasn't supposed to be written about. So it didn't really develop that language for writing about sex. It was so embarrassing and so phallic most of the time. So straight away early on, I kind of forbid myself to use all those words like pumping and thrusting and grinding and all the usual kind of sex words that I had to use something else and think about it in a different way. Then you're really digging down into who people are.
1: Uh, You were talking about it before also, Justin, about, you know, intimacy in this new age. You know, I mean, there was a generation of artists and writers affected by um, AIDS and uh, the way COVID, we're already awkward about intimacy anyway. And I don't know what it's going to be like. uh, How this is influencing our art, or how it's just—you know—it's just going to be that much harder. Yeah, I mean, I I
2: think that will come. I mean, there's there's going to be the writing about this time. I mean, for me, it's too soon because I don't know yet. I still feel like I'm I'm too much in it to really offer any kind of analysis or even to want to write about it. For me, there needs to be time and space to do it. But of course, this kind of global experience which we so rarely have really where that everyone in the world is suddenly put under a similar pressure and in different ways and some people are obviously have different problems or, or have you know worse situations to contend with than others but that we are all essentially living in fear of our lives is you know that's a very unusual situation like it's got to be the cold war surely since we were all (laughs) oh shit what if what if the end is here at least that's how it felt at the beginning of lockdown and that's of course we will all be changed by that and art will be changed by that we can't escape it it can't good art you know absorbs everything eventually and not necessarily oh here's my covid novel but you know
1: the fear of the body for instance and so uh, i want to ask about i guess in closing i mean we do ask about your thoughts about the future so i think that's kind of appropriate I don't know if you wanted to to uh, tackle any of our big systems or how we might improve them, whether it's education <laughs> or health or global warming, just to just all oh, everything's on the table. Well, my <laughs> solution. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm warming. listening. I want to listen. I mean, I really believe some people have these solutions. They have keeping inside they're keeping inside them. To be honest, I think
2: the problem that I'm finding hardest to cope with at the moment is the, an unwillingness to listen, a fear of conversation that I think is very toxic and has spilled into the centre of a lot of the big arguments that we need to be having about the world today. And the fear of complexity, of course everyone wants to know I'm thinking the right thing or I'm thinking the wrong thing, it's black or it's white, but I, there are so few things in life that I think that have black and white solutions. And I suppose what I hope is that people learn to stop being afraid of complexity, to hold lots of ideas at once, to know that even if you don't agree with a certain position, perhaps there is merit in trying to understand the root of that position rather than attacking and saying that there can be no discussion because your view is the right view. And I really think we have got ourselves into a deadlock and we need to get out of that deadlock and that is by accepting that no one answer is is the right answer that the world is filled with complex things and we have to make accommodations for each other as we would wish accommodations to be made for ourselves i really think that's that is the thing that is is causing such a difficulty at the moment we have to find a way through and some things are a matter of life and death whether we find a way through and the ways that we are doing it, doing it now aren't working.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I mean, um, speaking on the artistic end of that, it seems like what you're saying, you know, a multiplicity of voices and listening and complexity could be a description of the novel itself, of novels uh, and what they can do and what they can contain. So I guess, uh, what are some things for you that, you know, you can really only do in literature? You know, the other mediums just, just touch it, but
2: yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think the novel has a capacity to hold a lot of things inside of it. and I dislike novels that are very didactic or ideological. I think that's bad art. I think the novel is there to explore many ideas and can hold many truths together in one place at a time. And that's you know part of the job of the novelist I think is 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 to refuse the binary is to always just look out more because there is always more. There's always so much more.
1: Well, thank you so much, Emma McBride, for showing us more, for um, inviting us into your imaginative world uh, with all its intimacy, that's sometimes strange, comic, traumatic, the ordinary lives you illuminate with your lyric voice, for sharing your insights. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Justin Hayes, with the participation of collaborating universities and students such as the producer of this podcast, Regan Kofink. Our digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee, and Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.